Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. When I look back on the fluorescent grind, I wonder even if the work paid off massively, would it have been worth the opportunity cost? Weren't there better alternatives to the 5.30 a.m. wake-up calls? The answer in a much more digitized world is a resounding yes. Once you remove geographic constraints and combine old-school, tribe-based trust with the modern promise of digitally empowered scale, you will shatter your growth ceiling. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema is a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and B2B service companies. And that's a fancy way of saying that we go out to the market on behalf of our clients to tee up meetings and keep the pipeline full no matter what's going on on their end. We do this through a proprietary approach, which we call relationship sales at scale. What makes this different is that instead of going in cold, we secure relationships by identifying and tastefully reaching out to the sorts of prospects that are already likely to talk to our clients based on personal and business commonalities as well as existing relationships. So if you'd like to learn more about what we're up to and schedule a free consultation, you can do that by going to saleschema.com. Again, that's saleschema.com. So if by chance you caught our updates a few months ago, you might know that I'm coming out with with a new book, which I'm very excited about. And on today's episode, I have something a little bit different for you, which is my reading of the first section of the book. For context, the book is called Relationship Sales at Scale, How to Find Your Virtual Tribe and Reliably Grow Your Professional Service Business. To give a little background, I had previously self-published a couple business books years ago. Um, I think the first one would have been 2014, and that was by the the name of Mastering Account Management. I had another one called the B2B Sales Blueprint, uh, and then years went by, and you know we built Sales Schema. Um, we started working with lots of clients, doing outreach, secure meetings, you know, in high places a lot of the time for all sorts of different businesses, and we we learned a whole lot in that process. And I kind of had this idea, you know, in the back of my mind to to write another book, but I really wanted to to do this one right, you know, and uh, put a lot of of time and effort into it, and really make something that could be useful to people that sort of like reinterpolates the way that we think about outreach and the way that we think about doing new business in the context of of a world that's changed a lot in terms of how we communicate, in terms of how we express, you know, the usefulness of the value of, of our products and services, in terms of information parity, you know, which is something that Dan Pink has written a lot about. All these things have kind of changed the way that we do this stuff and the best practitioners that I know, the people that are that are way better than, than me at sales or have built incredible businesses, kind of do these things anyway. They've just never really been articulated well. So that was the sort of thing that's inspired this book. Um, it's And with that, uh, I want to start reading it. So <laughs> sit back and relax. If you are interested in this and you want to Get the rest of the book. It will be coming out soon and stay tuned for our updates and we'll let you know exactly when and where to get it. But we're looking at the next couple months here. Intro, new school meets old school. It's 5.30 a.m. and I roll out of bed, shower, slap on the old button down and slacks and shuffle off on the end train to Midtown Manhattan for yet another roundtable networking group. The fluorescent lights scorch my eyes as as I settle into an office chair alongside a dozen other salespeople and executives. 
The catered locks and bagel spread and free-flowing coffee is the only thing keeping me alive. We go, quote-unquote, around the horn, and each participant rattles off the same canned taglines and service descriptions we've heard hundreds of times. I'm Spanky, and I'm with Doobie Cheatham and Howe, the victim's first law firm. Then it's my turn. I'm Dan, and I'm with XYZ Agency. We create high-quality animated videos for enterprise brands. We produce commercials, explainer videos, and internal communications videos. I'm looking to meet marketing and HR leaders at companies above $50 million in revenue. We have strong case studies in telecom, healthcare, and B2B software, and I appreciate any intros or ideas. After two years of old-school in-person networking and dozens of meandering coffee dates, plus similar experiences at trade shows, I had won just two clients. Not a great track record. Maybe I was bad at networking, but I'm not so sure. All of my peers who sold complex services, who included salespeople and executives and marketing agencies, creative service companies, consulting, and other rarefied areas, described similar experiences. We were specific about our targets, and we had the chops, yet our bottom line was unmoved. Yet we kept at it. At least we were making friends and learning new things. And it's not that the group didn't want to help. They couldn't. We sold weird stuff to rare people. At the same time, we knew the group could be profitable because we saw that many leads were traded and tons of business was closed by one particular sector, real estate professionals, who included agents, brokers, lawyers, and title insurance people. The real estate posse passed leads like kids trading baseball cards, and they racked up deals constantly. As a real estate professional, the competition to land a seat in the group was fierce, and participants were booted regularly for no-shows or failing to produce leads. After a few years, in some perspective, I understand why the real estate posse was so successful. They built a tribe. Here is how their tribal dynamic paid off. Let's say a broker introduced the lawyer to a young couple seeking to buy a condo. The lawyer then won their business and introed them to the title insurance person. The title insurance person introed them to the financial planner. The financial planner introed the lawyer to a high net worth person who wants to sue the mayor or whatever. The high net worth person goes to market for a condo and needs a broker. The antelope eat the grass. Elton John starts singing and the circle of life continues. So a localized in-person networking environment was perfect for the real estate posse because property-related transactions tend to play out locally and in person. The complex service salespeople, on the other hand, were trying to play basketball on a football field, dribbling balls that did not bounce back. Since those early mornings, I've been fortunate enough to get a lot more perspective and experience. As the first employee and new business lead, I went on to help the video business achieve seven-figure revenues, including 16 Fortune 500 accounts. From there, I founded Sales Schema, a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and B2B service companies. And at the time of this writing, we've secured tens of thousands of prospect relationships for clients and helped generate millions in lifetime revenue, one across many industries. When I look back on the fluorescent grind, I wonder, even if the work paid off massively, would it have been worth the opportunity cost? Weren't there better alternatives to the 5.30 a.m. wake-up calls? The answer in a much more digitized world is a resounding yes. What if you could achieve 80% of the trust, market intelligence, and influence of belly-to-belly relationship building without planes, trains, cars, and commutes? See part two of this book. What if you could condense the upside of five years of networking into a single push of a button email blast? See part three. What if you could deliberately build a referral engine for getting warm introductions to your best and most lucrative clients in a matter of weeks instead of waiting around years to stumble upon the right connector?
see part three again. What if you could reconnoiter your existing team and resources into a system that reliably closes complex multi-stage deals? See parts four and five. Once you remove geographic constraints and combine old school tribe-based trust with the modern promise of digitally empowered scale, you will shatter your growth ceiling. While scale and relationship-driven influence are mainstays of consumer marketing in the B2B world, there is only a tiny and exclusive cadre of sophisticated salespeople and executives who have figured out how to harness these dynamics profitably. Combining the old school with the new, the rest of this book will teach you how to implement relationship sales at scale so you can build a reliable, complex service-focused new business process for the digital age. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, How to Take Charge of Your Agency's Future Revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Access the online resources. Throughout the book, I reference a variety of online resources, including video interviews, spreadsheets, and templates, which you can access via a link, which breaking uh, out of the narrative here will be available when the book is ready. Here's how to read this book. This book is going to be roughly half conceptual and half actionable. Per the conceptual, if you're like me, you're probably eager to get off and running with this or that tactic that I'm going to talk about. But it's important to take a beat and understand the dynamics of a high skepticism market, which we are mostly in. Once you do that, you will understand why the various tactics work. And more importantly, you will be able to develop your own campaign ideas. Given some time, the stuff you come up with yourself will probably work better than anything I've laid out here. So the context is worth it. What's inside? Part one, too much noise. In part one, I lay out the few big shifts and changes that should cause you to fundamentally rethink how you open doors and sell to prospects at the top of the funnel. Part two, how to keep your pipeline full by balancing personalization and scale. Part two covers what exactly this rethinking looks like in terms of balancing personalization and scale so you can de-risk conversations, keep your pipeline full, and grow reliably. Part three, how to build effective campaigns. Part three is the how chapter, and this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you're going to get list building strategies, campaign and copy examples, case studies, and other hands-on resources. If you're reading this book on a beach, I recommend pausing on this section and circling back when you're in doing mode. Part four, the 21st century sales team. Part four is the who chapter, and it covers the right division of duties and team structure for implementing relationship sales at scale and maintaining consistency long-term, even if you're small or solo. Part five, the perfect day sales process. So part five is the blocking and tackling section on closing deals. I argue that bottom of funnel sales, or in other words, the process of selling to prospects once they are interested in a fit has not changed a ton over the years. Success is more about practice, optimization, and timeless best practices combined with a few digital age upgrades. 
This chapter is somewhat folksy, and its Zig Ziglar-inspired structure is made up of free-floating stories and metaphors. Don't worry, at least half the section is immediately actionable, and this section will give you script templates and if-this-then-that scenarios you can use in your process right away. Who this is for, I put quote-unquote professional services in the subtitle of this book for a couple reasons. It's the widely used term for a variety of complex service offerings, even those that might accompany products and technology, and many of the lessons here were learned while selling marketing agency offerings, often to large organizations. That said, if quote-unquote professional services doesn't describe you perfectly, this book will be useful if you're a B2B sales professional, including owners and entrepreneurs, and your process is consultative. Usually, this means that your offering is not for mass consumption. Going further, this book will hit the spot if you're frustrated with your lack of results and you're ready to try something new and slightly unorthodox to break through to the next level. One of the most common ways that this frustration plays out is in the form of not enough qualified prospects in your pipeline. Maybe you feel like you would knock the ball out of the park if only you got enough at-bats and you're not sure why the fastballs down the middle fail to materialize like they used to. That's the last sports metaphor, I promise. So if that's you, the next section will explain why most modern sales tactics fail to convert skeptical prospects and how you can do better. Part one, too much noise. When I was studying music at UC Santa Cruz, the professor asked the class a question that sticks with me. How do you define noise? As smart-ass college juniors, we all started overthinking it, spouting out long-winded definitions involving frequency and the prefrontal cortex. His Yoda-like answer was simple. Noise is any unwanted sound. In a world of high competition for both business and attention, how much of your sales and marketing efforts writ large are noise? And how can you go from noise to the stuff that actually builds profitable relationships? Most busy professionals describe 80% or more of their inboxes, phone calls, and social media feeds as spam, and many spend hours filtering and sifting through this junk, yet almost no one admits that they are part of the problem. I'll admit it, for a time anyway. In the early days here at Sales Schema, working with a variety of freelancers and partners, we tried every outreach tactic and channel under the sun to win meetings for our clients, typically made with decision makers in mid to large organizations. To keep the pipeline full, we sent emails, made phone calls, and did LinkedIn outreach, working as if we were the client themselves. While there were some wins and we lined up meetings in high places, overall it was crickets and sometimes we went weeks without meetings. Clients became irritated and I absolutely dreaded my inbox each morning. We faced attrition and we had to lay people off. One cold winter after firing a friend, I woke up to a burning rash on my stomach that would be diagnosed as shingles. To get results for clients, we looked for every outside perspective we could find and we compared notes with everyone in the know. Salespeople, consultants, indirect competitors, and software specialists, among others. To get decision makers to agree to meet with our clients, we threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall. And here are a few things we tried. We set up complex funnels involving email, LinkedIn, phone, and direct mail. We sent prospects content, including case studies, videos, testimonials, and other examples. We bought access to expensive lists and databases. We tinkered with dozens of software products. We hired a team of quote-unquote dialing for dollars sales reps to chase prospects. And we learned from every outreach expert we could find. Some experiments kind of worked for a while, but nothing was sustainable. 
Thankfully, our outreach campaigns act like a giant satellite pulling in data from the heavens, and we were able to lap up a stream of market feedback in the form of written responses from a diverse array of prospects. Over time, the feedback became consistent, clear, and at this point, unsurprising. There is too much competition and noise. This is especially true when it comes to marketing agencies, professional digital services, and or any company that can be started via a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection. And this description now describes a big chunk of the global economy. In response to all the noise, we swerved away from the high activity sales grind and turned toward the white glove outreach. This means that we spend many hours researching individual accounts and writing completely customized letters to each prospect, each completely unique from the one that preceded it. Each piece of outreach, be it over email, LinkedIn, direct mail, or cold call, was grounded in market understanding and supposed signals such as posting on job sites, news results, and social media activity. We were able to book sales meetings from this white glove approach, and the no's were polite and friendly, so we chugged along with it for a while, and then we hit a wall. The problem was output volume. Since each and every email was handwritten and each prospect was researched individually, we were only able to contact a few prospects per day. And if our timing was off, our prospect had recently moved companies without updating info, or countless other issues came up, all the work went down the drain. We were left with no good answer to the modern prospecting problem, and things were looking bad. But we were determined to find a way. So we were scheduled to run campaigns for a Bay Area branding agency that had been around for 20 years and had strong specialization in the tech industry. They featured logos for almost every major software company on their homepage, plus the two founders were skilled and well-connected salespeople. The company survived on referrals, and since the partners were actively looking to get acquired so one of them could retire, they knew they had a problem. They needed to build scalable new business channels in a relatively short period of time. So we tried a lot of the tactics described above, which while seemingly sophisticated, all amounted to going in cold. After nearly six months, we generated only a handful of lukewarm meetings. It was frustrating because we had presented their services and case studies in every possible way, including dozens of permutations of different features and benefits, and nothing worked. We were at a loss. Given this agency's strong specialization and track record, if the usual playbook didn't work for them, who would it work for? Then we thought, what if the old playbook is broken? What if all the usual tactics, be they automated or handcrafted, were doing a version of the same thing, making noise and hard-selling prospects in a low-trust environment? Since we had nothing to lose and expected to be fired on any given morning, we turned over the table and took our client tribal. We pitched an idea for tapping into their extended personal network or tribe, and thankfully they were patient and gracious enough to let us give it a shot which ultimately paid off massively for them and eventually transformed our entire outlook and process. Instead of yelling at a brick wall by chasing and pitching decision makers cold, we flipped the script and identified the types of prospects who are already likely to speak to our client based on business and or personal commonalities. After all, referrals were our client's best historic source of new business, as they are for many firms. So what if we could simply strengthen and expand the same tactics that got them to the dance? We built a custom list of C-levels and VP prospects who had once worked for a large account our client had partnered with for years, but had drifted onto another target account, and we sent a simple three-line email paraphrased here. Hey, Lisa, how have you been? Saw you used to work at Big Co., and we did some great work for them over the years. So maybe we crossed paths? 
Looks like you're doing compelling work at Acme now, and I would love to see how we might be able to collaborate. Open to a call. What was special about this approach is that it gelled with how our clients and most old school executives work their networks, quote unquote, when they have the rare motivation and time to do personalized outreach. By batching up that process and doing it for them, we remove the tedious niche, which makes everything fall apart. With relationship-driven outreach at scale, the results are incredible. On a list of around 1,000, we saw above 60% open rates and a 10-20% response rate compared against the sub-3% rates most large and ineffective campaigns experience. More importantly, while most campaigns are strewn with irritated go-ways from prospects, almost all the responses were warm and positive. This translated into dozens of quality meetings and eventually a multi-six-figure deal with a large financial institution. Our client went on to achieve their dream as they were acquired by a major consulting firm. From this experience and similar wins, over time, we moved almost all of our campaigns to this model and approached the works many times better than cold outreach especially when it comes to opening doors with skeptical buyers. It's one thing to give you a detached case study or tactic, but context is that which is scarce and valuable. And once you have it, you'll be empowered to make this process your own. Lessons from Gene. The following story might sound familiar as it's one we hear at least a few times every month. You get an email from a buyer in a company that's been on your radar for a couple of years. The organization is the perfect prospect, and they are doing a big RFP on which they want you to pitch. You really participate in big pitches, but this is different. You've done a ton of work in this company's vertical, and you know you can exceed their expectations. This is a golden opportunity. So you get to work. You pull in specialists on your team to craft the proposal, and you coordinate with your buyer. Through many phone and email exchanges, you engender a champion who sings your praises up the line to their management team. You build and present relevant case studies, testimonials, and other sales collateral, showing your buyer all the work you've done in their field and demonstrating exactly why you're the best fit. There are late nights and several rounds of revisions. After all, this is a big investment for your buyer, and you want to prove that you will be their best pick. You do everything right in terms of sales best practices. You only present proposals live, and you ensure all decision makers are in the room. You understand when, where, and how the company will select their chosen vendor. You're excited about this one and you start planning for the engagement and you daydream about the investments you'll make with the revenue windfall. But after three weeks, your buyer goes silent. Your emails go unanswered for many days. And finally, the company gets back to you and lets you know that they, quote, went in a different direction, unquote. Your quest's fallen and bewildered. You invested so many resources that could have gone to better things. You chase your champion down, and finally you get him on the phone. He tells you that the management team ultimately selected a local vendor that they had known for years. He's sorry, and he promises to find a way to collaborate in the future. You're frustrated. They're idiots to have snubbed you over such a meaningless and borderline corrupt connection. They're incompetent to have opted for a relationship over the benefits you laid out so precisely in your proposal. Who knows whether your prospect ultimately made the right decision? But what if there's more to this story? Maybe there was a little more method than madness to the buyer's decision-making process, even if their method was subconscious. What actually happened here? A book from the 1960s can help us answer that question. Eugene Schwartz was an old-school copywriter who crafted famous campaigns. Among many taglines, Gene crafted celebrated catchphrases like, give me 15 minutes and I'll give you a superpower memory. 
which launched the first book of the memory expert Harry Lorraine, inspired advertisers for years to come. A certain global insurance company comes to mind. Gene published 10 books, including Breakthrough Advertising, a timeless textbook for advanced copywriters and marketers. Breakthrough Advertising is full of useful marketing and copywriting lessons, but there's one that is particularly powerful. You can't unsee it, sort of like you're a fish identifying water for the first time. The Five Stages of Market Sophistication This is where Gene takes us through the buyer journey on a macro historical level for any given product, service, or solution. I've also seen the stages defined as awareness or skepticism, which are qualities that increase in severity at each subsequent stage. These five stages are just as real today as they were in the 60s and before, but for reasons I'll cover, companies and offerings move through each one a lot faster than they once did. Stage one, unaware. The market is not aware they have a problem or need. There's essentially no competition and prospects have to be told your offering exists. Think of the early days of new inventions like Facebook, the car, or the first advertising agency. This is where the Henry Ford line, if people asked what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse uh, sort of thing comes into play. Stage two, problem aware. The market understands the problem your offering solves, and there are some competitors who make similar claims and promises. Copying advertising tends to become lengthier as companies work to communicate differentiators. Think of an early sunglass brand progressing from these keep the sun out of your eyes to these keep the sun out of your eyes and they're waterproof or whatever. From my own travels, I associate this stage with social media and marketing agencies circa 2010, one of which I worked in, uh, who would win major brands by claiming to be cooler and more edgy than the competition. Stage three, solution aware. Level three is the point at which the previous claims won't work anymore. This is the how stage where the mechanism of action is front and center. As Schwartz writes, if your market is at the stage where they've heard all the claims and all their extremes, then mere repetition and exaggeration won't work any longer. What this market needs now is a new device to make all these claims become fresh and believable. In other words, a new mechanism, a new way to make the old promise work, a different process, a fresh chance, a brand new possibility of access where only disappointment has resulted before. I associate this stage with Silicon Valley companies disrupting legacy industries. Think of pitches for new products and well-understood categories that offer believable reasons for dramatically better pricing. Think of, quote, we are able to offer the same quality for a lower price because we cut out the middleman via XYZ technical process or whatever. Stage four is product wear. Level four is an arms race for prospects, hearts, and minds. Competitors are at each other's throats. This is more direct competition than ever, and buyers are constantly comparing options and making value judgments. I think of this as stage two on steroids, and the all-out war between ride-sharing apps comes to mind. As Gene argues at this stage, marketers should, quote, simply elaborate or enlarge upon the successful mechanism, make it easier, quicker, sure, allow it to solve more of the problem, overcome old limitations, promise extra benefits. You are beginning a stage of embellishment similar to the second stage of sophistication. Stage five, most aware. This is where the emphasis shifts from focusing on the product to focusing on the customer. As Gene says, quote, you are dealing here with the problem of bringing your prospect into your ad, not through desire, but through identification. Think of Apple's approach to identifying with their tribe in opposition to the PC or the cozy pub that serves the same five beers, but they play all the music that you love. Most importantly, think of your own 
complex service business right now. Keep in mind that these stages are not the same for every buyer. Our agency clients who sell digital marketing services to growth stage e-commerce brands will rightly put such a prospect through a different sales process than they might use for a Rust Belt manufacturer whose website was built in 1995. But nowadays, it's all about the most aware buyers. Stage five is about building personal connections and offering value, something you might know a lot about if you consumed any business books or articles in the last few years. So much recent marketing and branding thought leadership surrounds the challenge of building a strong customer base through a shared vision or identification. Even if genes work and the most aware group is not referred to explicitly, it's ubiquitous because companies move through each stage of sophistication more quickly than ever due to rapid communication speeds in the digital age, and customers end up in stage five much sooner than they once did. This is backed up by writers like Dan Pink, who in his book, To Sell as Human, observed that there is now much more information symmetry between buyers and sellers, when in previous eras, sellers had a major informational edge. Just think of the old-timey used car sales tactics most of us revile, compared to the ones we use now. Stage 5 explains why relationship sales at scale work so well for complex service clients when all else tends to fail. We are simply targeting and reaching out to prospects in a way that allows them to identify with our clients through real commonalities and tribe-based trust. Most failed sales and marketing campaigns, at least in the complex service realm, happen from companies assuming their markets are at a lower level of sophistication than they actually are. You see this all the time when complex service businesses yell about features, benefits, bells, whistles, and other things that are noise to the most aware prospect. Here are a few real examples of incorrect assumptions. Quote, since we are based in the Midwest, we can outcompete New York agencies on price. Another one, we leverage a giant database of 100K influencers to build award-winning campaigns. Our team is composed of former musicians, artists, and creatives, so we know how to think outside the box. Complex services are not shiny objects in the way software and mechanical inventions are. Going further, businesses you can start with a laptop and an internet connection are usually selling to prospects who have been burned before or are otherwise skeptical, even if they are not experts on your discipline. Yes, you might have a product or service or in an emerging area that's enticing at face value for a little while, but in a matter of months, the space will become well understood and increasingly crowded, since almost anyone can claim expertise, even if they don't have it. Accepting that you're selling to a prospect in the most aware, read, skeptical stage does not mean that your proof elements and service differentiators are not important. They are, but you should reconsider leading with them. Differentiators for complex service businesses are, well, complex, and communicating them requires subtlety and a high level of attention, which means that your prospects have to care enough to tune in. Featuring case studies, sales collateral, and similar proof elements on your site are table stakes, not unlike a business card. No one cares about them unless you don't have them. But leading with product-related differentiators in your outreach is like throwing pebbles at a brick wall. So if the answer is not selling something completely new or yelling into the void about features and benefits, then what is the answer? To open doors with most of our prospects, it's simpler and easier than you think. You have to build enough trust to simply de-risk a conversation. The rest of this book will teach you how to do that over and over again so you can keep your pipeline full and grow reliably. But once you de-risk this conversation, what on earth do you sell? 
Given that trust is the scarce resource, your products and services right off the bat must establish you as someone who can be trusted to solve big, expensive problems. As author and marketing thought leader Robert Rose argues, the greatest value you can offer lives at either side of the smile graph, which he described on an episode of our digital agency growth podcast and was gracious enough to let me reprint here in this book. You can find a bigger version of the smile graph eventually in the resources section. So the graph centers on the marketing and advertising category, but you can broad frame the concepts to many other industries. It's hard to describe in audio, but basically the top of the smile graph is where the highly paid thinkers and organizers live. Strategy guides just about everything else. So if you emphasize the products and services that create a roadmap for solving big lucrative problems, your clients will see you as Professor X. You can charge top dollar and you will keep them for years to come. The middle of the smile graph, on the other hand, is the commodity dead zone. This is where undifferentiated labor lives, and for better or worse, workers make less than thinkers and organizers. The middle is being squeezed by increasing competition from a global workforce and robots. Dead zone examples, web design and development, content creation, community management, basic customer service, media management. The top right of the smile graph is the measurement section, which is where the highly paid thinkers and organizers kick back into gear. This area might include conversion rate optimization, analytics, predictive measurement, and other intelligence that helps companies make big, costly decisions. It will be tough in the eyes of your clients for you to transition from the middle stage dead zone back to the high value sections, kind of like being friend zoned. So it's better to stay out of the middle to begin with. Just imagine this interaction. You. Hey, client, we want to craft you a strategy to overhaul your social media marketing and integrate it with broader business goals. Client, aren't you the guys who send out tweets for us on Wednesdays? Sorry, uh, we're pretty busy with other initiatives right now. If you're in the middle zone, don't worry. You don't necessarily have to blow up your business and reinvent it. And in part five, you will learn an effective sales process for a highly successful business that offers middle zone services. Your prospect's most aware or most skeptical status, as observed by Gene and further articulated indirectly by Robert Rose, should impact how you communicate your offering. That said, your prospect's most aware or skeptical status, as observed by Gene, should impact how you communicate your offering and the channels you use to open doors. The three revenue channels. From a 50,000-foot view, there are three non-mutually exclusive channels for winning clients and growing your business, and each channel can feed the others, as we will cover. Number one, your orbit. The prospects who know, like, and trust you already. Examples, referrals, friends of friends, networking acquaintances. Advantages, you start with trust. Prospects are typically far along in the sales process when they are introduced to you. Challenges, opportunities and growth are limited. If everyone in your market already knows, likes, and trusts you, you would not be listening to podcasts or reading this book, probably. (laughs) The inconsistent nature of over-relying on your existing orbit can lead to feast, famine, and stagnation. Number two, inbound. This is the gradually expanding force of gravity that extends just outside your orbit and attracts new prospects. Examples, content, like what I'm doing right now, public speaking, podcasts, online communities, advertising. Advantages, prospects come to you. And if they consume your content, you build trust and authority. Challenges, your pull expands gradually and inbound channels can take a long time to ramp up. Not everyone who knocks on your door is a fit and qualification takes time and resources. 
A third challenge, volatility and platform risk. You can be priced out and competition kills profits. More on that later. Number three, outbound. Basically, you are the one who knocks and you build relationships with your prospects by contacting them proactively via channels like email, LinkedIn, phone, or direct mail. Challenges. Notice how I started with challenges because I'm going to sell you on outbound in a second. Only 3% of the market is actively searching for a solution. Even if this figure might vary, most of the prospects who take a meeting with you won't be able to buy from you right away. So your sales cycle will take longer and will require forethought. But the advantages are you build the relationship proactively before your competitors do and you guide the decision-making process. You decide who you work with and contact only those companies who are a good fit and avoid wasting time and resources on qualification. You own your outreach process and it's not subject to the whims of tech companies and ad auctions. All these channels tie together and feed off each other. If you email a prospect to request a meeting and she saw your ad the day before, the chances are better that she will respond and take that meeting. Ideally, you have at least some coverage and diversification in each and all of the above areas. For many successful organizations, this looks like one to a few big inbound marketing projects like a podcast, an active blog, or guest post partnership. For example, Sales Schema, our inbound marketing centers on this very podcast, uh, and a few big initiatives each year like webinars, event sponsorships, and this very book. The problem is that too many salespeople think they have to be everywhere and they need all of their ducks in a row before contacting prospects. So they write articles, tinker with software, CRMs, and ad campaigns, and wring their hands. It's not that inbound marketing is not useful or important. It's just a question of emphasis and what percentage of the pie you divide between inbound and outbound. If you're a busy salesperson or executive or your team is small, where should you invest the lion's share of your time and resources? Ending the social media hangover. There came a time in my late 20s and early 30s when excessive partying and hangovers stopped being worth it. With social media, it's like we're all suffering the same perpetual hangover, but we rarely change our lifestyles. We just treat it with more binge drinking as midnight whiskey shots become morning mimosas. Don't worry, I'm not going to drag you through a contrived rant about how social media is stealing your attention and feeding you impossible standards about abdominal muscles and vacation homes. Hazards like those are well known at this point. This is about your business where the influence of social media is just as insidious but much less talked about. Companies like LinkedIn and Facebook rival industrial superpowers of previous eras like U.S. Steel or Standard Oil as measured by market cap, profitability, and political power. Underneath the tech giants are the many brands, software companies, agencies, and consultants who specialize exclusively on selling products and services via social networks. Perhaps you're one of them. And alongside the social sellers are the thousands of publishers encompassing podcasts, blogs, and publications devoted to social marketing. All of the above compose a planetary star-level gravitational pull, constantly making the case that you must invest your resources on social or else perish. Just try Googling B2B social media marketing and you will find dozens of articles yelling about how most companies suck at social media. At a certain point, we have to ask, might this suckiness be because it's not the best approach?
While ROI data can be highly contextual, the numbers seem to bear this out and at a minimum suggest that social is far from the best option for B2B marketers and salespeople. According to a report by Chief Marketer, outreach via email is the highest ROI channel for B2B marketers with a reported 50% return, while social media landed in fifth place at a 23% return, and reports from other researchers echo similar findings. The social pull is hard to shake off, and it's harmful because it leads businesses to overcomplicate just about everything and waste untold time and resources. Every week, our team talks with yet another salesperson or executive who is struggling to set up complex and unnecessary inbound marketing software, or else is building a content calendar for social posts that almost no one will ever see. Other times, we hear that highly trained salespeople are being asked to write blog posts, Shiny object after shiny object, the sales team, even if it's just one person, is pulled away from building real relationships with their prospects. But distraction is not even the worst hazard social media marketing poses. Platform risk. Let's say that after lots of time and money, you get results from an ad funnel, search ranking, or a social community. Next comes platform risk. In an earlier era, maybe this platform risk was palatable but now it often outweighs the potential rewards. The social giants are like cruel and unpredictable Old Testament gods. They giveth and more often they taketh. There are many newsworthy examples of large companies being completely steamrolled by the social giants. One was Zynga, the publicly traded mobile game company that went public and is now a shell of its former self after running afoul of Facebook. Another is Mahalo, a user-generated search engine that Google torched in its rankings via the Panda algorithm update, which led to more than 80 layoffs and the company's collapse. With big Silicon Valley downfalls, there are usually shades of gray and multiple sides to the story. But for every well-known account, There are dozens of similar firms that face similar fates with whimpers instead of shouts. In my own travels, I've seen many teams scramble, go through layoffs, and even file for bankruptcy due to rising click costs, declining search engine performance, algorithm changes, and other forms of unhedged platform risk. Thousands of content websites have been torched overnight via search algorithm changes and updates, and countless businesses who worked for years to rank had their lunches given away to advertisers who paid for the pleasure of top rankings. Just try Googling almost any need and see how far you have to scroll before you hit organic, non-advertised results. Many marketers painstakingly built social communities and groups only to see certain tech giants switch gears to ad-based models, making it prohibitively expensive to communicate with the audiences they work so hard to build. The list goes on, and since platform-related upheaval is happening with increasing frequency, it would be naive to call any given incident isolated. All that said, if you can't beat them, join them. Why not just pay to play and buy ads? After all, markets center on risk and reward, and sometimes Taking platform risk is worth it. Just ask the e-commerce businesses racking up millions on Amazon at the time of this writing. But the returns from platforms more and more often are not commensurate with the risk. Buying ads might pay off for a while, but as media markets mature, advertising costs become hard to stomach for many businesses. If your paid ad spends are paying off today, they might not tomorrow as more competitors shuffle into your space. As demand for eyeballs increase... And as the click auction gets crowded, winner-take-all dynamics kick in, and after a while, the whales are the only ones who can afford to sit at the table. Even if you improve your conversion rate, you eventually pay more for ads and don't see the profit. It simply flows through your P&L straight into the tech giant's coffers. 
Social networks now shift and change policies faster than ever as they scramble to maintain market share with competing platforms and deal with political forces surrounding privacy and other issues. One example is the Apple iOS 14 update, when the company curtailed advertisers' ability to track users, resulting in skywriting advertising costs, perhaps justifiably. The big tech companies are not going away, but we should look at them soberly. You have to ask, is it worth keeping all of your eggs in someone else's basket over a long time horizon? Giving a big share of marketing dollars to outside companies might be hard to avoid for many consumer brands, but is this the right route for your firm? It's time to recover from the hangover and focus on building long-term revenue channels that you actually own and control. Instead of me giving you tips on where to buy cheap plywood and recycled brick so you can build a flimsy, arrested development-style track home, I want you to put down this book knowing how to construct an old stone mansion that will last for centuries and weather any storm. Why you should focus 80% of your efforts on Outbound. When I see the song and dance many organizations do before actually reaching out to a prospect they can help, it reminds me of that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when our hero Indiana Jones comes face-to-face with a sword-brandishing enemy. The viewer expects a lengthy hand-to-hand battle, but in surprising comic fashion, true-to-the-film's B-movie vibe, Indiana reacts by coolly and casually shooting the enemy dead. What if you are twirling a sword around when you could be pulling out a revolver? But first, a disclaimer, outbound is not the best match for everyone. If you sell to consumers or small businesses, it's possible you will need a much higher volume of prospects than outreach can furnish in order to sustain your relatively low-priced product or service. Since you are selling to a large market, ad funnels, advertising, and other mass marketing mediums might be a better fit. Targeted outreach works best for businesses selling to other businesses who have a client value of at least That's because you need a big enough pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in order to fund not only the resources you invest in outreach, but also the time a highly skilled closer must spend with slower moving prospects. More on that in part five. If you're in this boat and you sell a quote-unquote big ticket offering, it's probable that what you sell is not for mass consumption and that your total addressable market, or TAM, is relatively small. While your potential customers are limited, the upside is big. You can get to know just about everyone. What would it mean for your growth if you could build relationships with your market deliberately today instead of waiting for them to maybe someday stumble upon you? The case for email. If you're excited to build relationships proactively with your prospect, and even if you've tried outreach in the past with limited results, your first question probably surrounds which channels to use. While the channel matters, when you're able to combine personalization and scale effectively, as we will cover in parts two and three, it's less important and you will generate meaningful opportunities whether your prospect consumes your messaging via email, LinkedIn, or Passenger Pigeon. Still, we have to pick a channel and there are a few good reasons to focus on email as your first point of contact. First, let's admit the obvious rub. We are all bogged down and fatigued by the ever-expanding weight of our inboxes, and the channel might seem less sexy and compelling than other sales and marketing mediums. That said, here is why email is your best starting place. 
Number one, you own the audience. Email is based on shared protocols like SMTP, POP3, and IMAP that no one owns. And while tech companies can affect which messages get through, at the end of the day, the channel functions based on the assumption that all users must send and receive communications from parties they do not know. This all means you have a lot more ownership over when, where, and how you communicate with your audience. Number two, tried and true. Since its inception in 1978, email, for better or worse, has enjoyed an ever-growing presence in our professional and personal lives, and it shows no sign of losing traction. According to Statista, the global email marketing space was valued at $7.5 billion in 2020 and is projected to increase to $17.9 billion by 2027. Number three, email can reach anyone. Below are a few examples of relationships, albeit anonymized, we've built for clients over the years via one single message. And if I could reveal them, these are names your grandmother would know. They include the founder and CEO of a big four tech company, the CEO of one of the largest global retailers, the co-founder and movie portrayed star of a prolific Silicon Valley film, a famous Hall of Fame football player. Beyond that, there are countless news stories of everyday people building meaningful relationships with presidents and global celebrities by simply lobbing the right words and address into the compose box. Number four, and this is the most important one, the inbox is where we go to make plans and do business. Our digital calendars, planners, and CRMs are at our fingertips when we process email, which greases the wheels for securing sales meetings. On the other hand, social channels are where we go to meander through memes and articles when we're bored. But what about outreach on other channels? You might be wondering how email compares to other common sales outreach channels, and here's some context. So number one, let's talk about direct mail. Direct mail or snail mail can be powerful when it's done right. It's a costly signal that can pique your prospect's interest. That said, it's expensive and time-consuming to manage, so it's probably not your best starting place. LinkedIn. Connecting on LinkedIn is a best practice, and as a data source, the network is second to none. But as covered, the platform is noisy and spammy, you don't own the audience, and there are ever-expanding restrictions on how you can communicate with your prospects. Phone. The phone is useful once you've had an exchange with a prospect, as we will cover later, but cold calling mid to large companies is often counterproductive due to technical barriers and gatekeepers. When we all receive a call from an unknown number, we assume it's spam, as it usually is. But after an email exchange, the caller's number often sinks to our mobile inbox, brings up a name we at least vaguely know, increasing the likelihood that we will accept the call. All parties involved in cold calling, including salespeople and prospects alike, absolutely hate it. So maybe it's time to try something else. Beyond these common mediums, there are portfolio websites, ratings and review indexes, as well as social media platforms existing and yet to be invented that allow you to share work and ideas. Many platforms can be useful for building a closer connection with prospects or presenting work once you've built a relationship, but email enjoys an unmatched power to put strangers in touch for the first time. Channel aside, unfortunately, around half of complex service companies do little to no prospecting at all, leaving new business to chance, and the other half conducts outreach in an annoying and ineffective way, ruining it for everyone else. Part two will teach you how balancing two opposing forces will empower you to consistently convert skeptical prospects, and you will learn from copy examples and tangible resources. So I hope you enjoyed my reading of of the first part of Relationship Sales at Scale. I hope you found it useful. Again, if you'd like to get your hands on the book, please stay tuned. We're going to have updates for you soon. And thanks again for listening to another episode of the Digital Agency Growth Podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. 
Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.